Welcome to the Providence Church Podcast. This is the fourth message in our series about David. In this episode, Pastor Dwight teaches us how to deal with fools by using the precedent set by David's encounter with Nabal. For more information about us, check out our website at provchurch.net. That's provchurch.net. Let's get into it. There was in the early 1980s a, a wealthy Swiss couple that started acting like fools. Uh, it, it all began when the husband canceled a vacation. And so the wife expressed her disappointment by pouring bicarbonate soda into her husband's fish tank, wiping out his collection of rare tropical fish. Gone. A long argument ensued. And so he grabbed a selection of his wife's diamond jewelry and threw it in the garbage disposal. Game on. She proceeded to fling his stereo equipment into their pool. Next step. He kicked a hole in her $250,000 Picasso. Kicked the hole in it. And then she was planning, she was planning to sink his 38-foot yacht when their daughter finally called the police. And the police said that they couldn't do anything because it isn't illegal to destroy your own property. And finally, the family lawyers got involved and intervened and established a truce. And it was the case of two fools in a downward spiral of heartbrokenness, excuse me, hard-heartedness, arrogance, and destruction. They went after it. There is, a, there is a memorable story from David's life that almost got out of hand. And if it were not for the intervention of a very wise woman, it would have been bad. And so if you have your Bibles, 1 Samuel chapter 25 is the text this morning. It is a great story, classic story. Um, I don't, many of you may know the name Nabal. And Abigail certainly becomes one of David's wives. But 1 Samuel chapter 25, and uh, it's, not a, it's, not a glorious, it's not a glorious moment for David. There's, there's, a, there's other moments that are not glorious as well. This is another one where it could have turned really bad. And so let's begin picking up in verse 1. In fact, the Bible tells us, first of all, now Samuel died and all of Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him at his home in Ramah. It was, uh, in essence, a national funeral. I don't know if you were tuning in. Many of you may or may not have yesterday the coronation. I mean, it has been 70 years since the coronation in England. I remember last, was it last fall, the Queen's funeral. And some of you have tuned in, perhaps I tuned in. I love history. So I'm, you know, I'm, when history's happening, I like to Pay, put some eyes on it. And so the queen's funeral was a, a spectacle. I don't think Samuel's funeral was a spectacle, but it was a national funeral because he was the prophet in Israel. He was the one who anointed David. He anointed Saul, the first king. He anointed David, the, the next king. He was the, the leading voice of God in all the nation in that time in history. And so when he died, the Bible says that they, all of Israel mourned his passing. And David would have also been thinking deeply about his mentor, his friend, uh, the one who God used to, to exalt him in his life. And so they had this burial at Ramah. It, then says, it says, then David moved down into the desert of Maon. 
And a certain man in Maon who had property there at Carmel was, a very, was very wealthy. He had a thousand goats and three thousand sheep, which he was shearing in Carmel. His name was Nabal, and his wife's name was Abigail. She was an intelligent and beautiful woman, but her husband, a Calebite, was surly and mean in his dealings. Complete opposite. While David was in the desert, he heard that Nabal was shearing sheep. And so he sent ten young men and said to them, Go up to Nabal at Carmel and greet him in my name. Say to him, Long life to you, good health to you and your household, and good health to all that is yours. Peace, peace, peace upon your head. Verse 7. Now I hear that it is sheep shearing time. When your shepherds were with us, we did not mistreat them, and the whole time they were at Carmel, nothing of theirs was missing. Ask your own servants, and they will tell you. Therefore, this is the request. David's telling his men, make this request. Ask your servants, your own servants, and they will tell you. Therefore, be favorable toward my young men, since we come at a festive time. Please give your servants and your son David whatever you can find for them. And when David's men arrived, they gave Nabal this message in David's name. And then they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants, Who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? Many servants are breaking away from their master these days. Why should I take my bread and my water and the meat that I have slaughtered for my shears and give it to men coming from who knows where? And David's men turned around and went back. And when they arrived, they reported every word. And verse 13, David said to his men, put on your swords. And so they put on their swords and David put on his. About 400 men went up with David, while 200 stayed with the supplies. Game on. The byline and I was thinking about that a lot this week as we look together at this whole path. We'll read through the passage this morning. But the byline this morning is, when dealing with a fool, don't become a fool. Nabal's a fool. In fact, there are three main characters in this account. And the first is Nabal. He is, um, in fact, later on in the passage, Abigail, his wife, will say in verse 25, folly goes with him. Wherever he goes, folly goes. Foolishness. And so you're wondering, well, how did he get this name? Would any parent purposely name their child fool? Really? I mean, even, in, even the, the worst of parents are probably going to hope for better for their children than that. So, but he, he apparently is living up to this name, whether it's been an inherited nickname or whatever. Nabal is what he goes by. And literally in the Hebrew, it means fool. It may have been a name that stuck with him. And here's, here's the thing. He's worth a lot. The Bible says he's very wealthy. He has 1,000 goats. He has 3,000 sheep. He has a lot of servants. He's worth a lot, but he's worthless. That's his story. He has a lot, but he acts crazy stupid. Nabal was a surly was surly and mean in his dealings. He didn't treat people well, and he had a reputation for not treating people well. One commentator said he was a loudmouthed brute. That's how he acted. The second character in this story 
is Abigail. We're going to get more to her later. She is his wife. She was an intelligent and beautiful woman. She's also very wise, as we will see later in this story. She sees what is needed in this situation and how to diffuse what is an explosive situation because when David hears the news, he's ready to go at it. He's going to go and kill everybody in Nabal's household, all the males in Nabal's household. They're going, they're going to die that day because David is infuriated at this uh, rejection by this fool. But Abigail sees, and we're going to watch how that unfolds here in a few minutes. And then, of course, there's David, the future king. He is... Uh, he and his men are still on the run from Saul at this point. Last week, Pastor Chuck talked about the, the interchange between Saul and David. And uh, there was many opportunities for David to kill Saul. In fact, in the 24th chapter, just before this chapter, is that section I think Chuck referred to last week where he, uh, Saul's in the cave and he's, he's, he's having a bathroom break and David's behind him in the darkness and he comes up around and he's able, this man, come take him. This is your moment. This is your chance. You can finally take him. And he says, no, no, no. He cuts off a corner of his robe and then he shares this later on when Saul's out and he tells him, hey, look what, look, what I, look what happened here. I could have had your life. God gave it to me, but I won't because I respect and submit to God's anointed. You are God's anointed authority. I'll let him deal with you. And so this is the story, the backstory. But now David is fussed up. Like he exercised restraint in chapter 24 when he had a moment when he could have taken out his rival. And now in 25, he gets this rejection and he's like, let's, let's go. This guy, he's done. So while Nabal is hard-headed, David is hot-headed. The narrative actually begins with a reasonable request. David and uh, his men are hungry and they've been actually providing in this place, providing protections and, if you will, a security detail for Nabal. I don't think there's any new indication that money was interchanged. They just happened to be camping out around his flocks, out in the, in the fields, in that place. And so they were willing to run cover for this man and his servants that no, because no bandits and thieves and, and wrongdoers would get at, the, at, at, at Nabal's flocks. And so they've been doing that for him. And, and so he says, could you, uh, it, it's sheep shearing time. And sheep shearing time was a, a festive time. It was a celebration of provision, a celebration of abundance. And typically, typically a person would give some of the wool away as they're shearing sheep to friends and neighbors. In this time, this is a communal time. And so let's thank God for his provision. Here's some wool. Here, have some, my neighbor, my friend. Take it and make some clothes that you need. Um, or let's, 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 take a, let's, take a, let's sacrifice a lamb and enjoy a meal together today. Uh, it's kind of like, and maybe in some sense, like a, a barn raising. You know, we're, we're familiar in this community with barn raisings. And the, the community, the Amish community comes together and they serve and they bring a pile of food, right? And they have a celebration. They get the job done, but they're working together. They're celebrating and they're sharing together. That's kind of the sense of what's happening around this sheep shearing time. And so David instructs his men, 10 of them. Isn't it interesting he sends 10 because he's expecting they're going to send back provision. Like Nabal's going to bless them. They have, there's, six, there's hundreds of men, and so we'll send 10 to get some of the provisions we need. 
And so he gives them instruction how to approach Nabal. And the first word is peace. Shalom. God's blessing on you and on your home and on your family and on your flocks. Peace to you. And so he, his heart is right. His heart starts out in the right place. And so he, he makes that request. And he reminds Nabal that we have endeavored to treat you well, and we never did anything to harm you or your shepherds or your servants. We were in the fields the whole time running cover. And so the question is, can you spare us some of what you have been blessed with? You are a wealthy man. You have much. Could you just give us some? Whatever you could spare, we would be glad to receive. That's the tone. of the, So it's a good request. It's an honorable request. And then the answer, here comes the fool, verses 10 and 11. And Nabal's response is, who is this David? Who, who does he think he is? I know he, who he is. Everybody knew who David, the son of Jesse, his reputation preceded him. He's the one who slayed the giant. He's the one who Saul slayed his thousands, David his tens of thousands. He was a mighty man of valor in Israel. He was highly esteemed. And everybody knows the story that he's on the run now. Everybody knows there's been some kind of falling out between him and Saul. People probably reading between the lines. Most likely, this is some, there's some kind of court intrigue, some kind of jealousy going on here. And so this is an unjust situation. Everybody would have known mostly what, what is happening with David in this story including Nabal. Why should I take my bread and my water and my meat and give it to these men? And so there is also an indication, doesn't, Nabal doesn't see that these things, in fact, are from God's hand. He's a fool. He thinks it's all about him. He doesn't understand that God's the one that provided the wealth. God's the one that provided the flocks. God's the one that gave him whatever he needed to accomplish that. It's God, God, God. And so he talks from the first person. I, my, I, my. Nabal is not generous. Nabal is not compassionate. He is not hospitable. He is not discerning. He is not thoughtful. He is arrogant hard-headed, selfish, and unapproachable. And so the takeaway is, I don't want to be him. When I read this story, I go, I don't want to be Nabal, right? I don't want to be the, the fool. So we read that and go, this guy, he makes it pretty, he makes it, he's like one of those guys in the, in the movies that the bad guy that's really good at what he does and he's so mean and nasty, you're like, I Oh, yeah. You just have that, your, your skin crawls. That guy, right? Like, I don't want to be that guy. But wait, <laughs> before we get too far down the story, we quickly see how David's anger gets the best of him. Because when he gets the news back from his men about this rejection, his response is, put on your swords. We're going to settle this. In fact, in verse 22, later on, he says, I'm not going to leave even one male in this man's house alive. They're all going down. So he's like, he is boiling with anger. And we know that David had a tendency toward bloodshed. He was a man of war. He knew how to fight. There's no doubt about it. In fact, it's what kept him from being able to build the temple. Later on in 2 Samuel, 
when you start reading in 2 Samuel and the conversation, David wants to build a house for the Lord, and God says, no. Nope. And part of the reasoning is because you're a man, you have blood on your hands. And so your son, Solomon, will take that mantle, and he will be the one that will build a temple for me. I like what Skip Heitzig said. He said, David is a man after God's own heart, but sometimes David heart, David's heart was pretty dark. Even the best of men are men at best. And they need the cross. So even a man with a heart that beats for God is susceptible. Any one of us is susceptible to the dark places in our heart. That's, that's total depravity. We're not necessarily wicked all the way to the core, but we are capable of all kinds of things because of the orientation of our hearts. And here's David, this man who just a chapter before was, was very delicate in how he approached Saul and not wanting to kill God's anointed. And now he gets this, he's spurned about some food and he's like, we're, we're, we're taking him out. We're going, this is, this is Rambo. We're going in and we're going to take names, right? Hmm. God gave David great passion. It's one of the things we love about David. Passion. Passions are the impulsive, almost instinctive motions of the soul. They are good, actually. Passions are good, but they are also dangerous. There's both sides to our passions. When channeled and lived under the submission of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, our passions can be amazing and life-giving and can bless other people in amazing ways and faithful ways. But when we get in our flesh and we get away from God's prescription and away from God's truth and away from the, the, the guidance and structure of the Holy Spirit, our passions can take us in all kinds of places that aren't good. There are, our passions are our immediate reactions to reality. And sometimes it's fear, and sometimes it's anxiety, and sometimes it's desire, unhealthy desire. Sometimes it's pity or grief or anger in this case. What happens when our anger, however justified in itself, goes unchecked and becomes rash? The truth, and this is, I have, there's several places in your outline this morning about truth. The first one is that truth, the truth, anger clouds our judgment. We don't think clearly when we get caught up in anger. We don't respond in a proportionate way. This is, this, this, this is not this scenario as it's unfolding. You, even when you're reading it going, wow, that seems pretty extreme. Like maybe Nabal deserves to die. And he actually does at the end of the story. But all his children and male heirs, and is that, is that really a proportionate response here? In fact, Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount warns us about anger. Jesus says, if you are angry with your brother, you are guilty of murder. So murder starts out as anger. The, 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 the end of someone else always begins in, in the heart of the person who takes that decision into their hands. And anger is the root of that. And it leads to, can lead to bloodshed and lead to death. Doing harm to others. And it can quickly escalate. 
That's why the scriptures are filled with warnings about anger and not being consumed by it. In fact, it's interesting to me, as I was studying this week, Psalm 4, verse 4, it's actually, it says, a psalm attributed to David. So these are David's words, Psalm 4, verse 4. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts, on your beds, and be silent. I, Ray Ortland, I love Ray, Ray Ortland says, Psalm 4, 4 calls us to restraint. The be angry at the beginning is matched by the be silent at the end. With the do not sin and the ponder in between. It's a total package. The right kind of anger is not hot-headed. It's not impulsive. It's not screaming rage, but careful and thoughtful. Wise anger is calmly deliberate. Derek Kidner says it. He says, sleep on it before you act or before you tweet in our modern day parlance. Mm. Do you remember when Paul addresses anger in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 26 and 27? He actually is quoting, I believe, Psalm 4, verse 4. In your anger, do not sin. Be angry, yet sin not. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. And then verse 27, and do not give the devil a foothold. That's how that little section ends. Do not give the devil a foothold. In other words, don't let him take the ground in your heart because anger will take ground in your heart that you don't want to give up. Anger will start to take pieces of your heart and start to overwhelm your heart and, and, and cloud your judgment and begin to lead you in ways you don't really want to go when you are calmly deliberate and thinking it through first. And so it's really important. We get a, don't give the devil a foothold. The devil loves hanging out with angry people. And so, and we're going to get there in a minute, but David, uh, as he's on the way to do the deed, and Abigail's going to meet him, and you'll see this in a minute, he is... And this is classic behavior. He is rehearsing his anger the whole way down. I can't believe it. That worthless, no good, all that we did for him, and he doesn't, and, and he's just, it says, and the Bible says he's saying this, he's speaking this. I don't know if he's speaking it out loud, he's speaking it to himself, but he is just fuming and he's rehearsing the injustice. He's rehearsing the offense. And that's a great way to let your anger just escalate more and more and more. So David has fallen into the trap, if you will. Hmm. In fact, he says, he paid me back evil for good. That no good for nothing. I'm going to pay him back. And what's coming is not good, but more evil. The complete opposite of Romans chapter 12, verse 21, which says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. In your response, choose good. Do not let evil dominate your heart. Your emotions, your responses, do not let it get a grip on how you deal with others. Anger will lead you into that place. But God, hmm, here comes the voice of wisdom. And Abigail is coming, and we're going to 
keep reading here. Verse 14, I believe is where we're at now. One of the servants told Nabal's wife, Abigail, David sent messengers from the desert to give our master his greetings, but he hurled insults at them. Yet these men were very good to us. They did not mistreat us. And the whole time we were out in the fields near them, nothing was missing. Not night and day, they were a wall around us. Isn't that an awesome image? A wall, a security wall. Night and day. All the time we were herding our sheep near them. They protected us. Now think it over and see what you can do because disaster is hanging over our master and his whole household, including you, Abigail. Your heart's going to suffer through this. And then she says this. He is such a wicked man, the servant says, he is such a wicked man that no one can talk to him. Before we get to Abigail's incredible God-ordained intervention, one more word about the fool. He is such a wicked man that no one can talk to him. The Bible tells us that there is a sure way to spot a fool, and that is that he or she is unteachable. So the truth about it is, uh, in terms of the outline, the fools are unteachable. They refuse criticism and correction, and instead they bristle and get defensive and deflect criticism back on you. A fool doesn't want to be encountered and told. Mm. When someone confronts us, this will be our biggest temptation to focus on our own bruised, fragile, wounded ego or to focus on God's truth and God's glory and God's desire in the situation. So we can either make it about us when someone's bringing a correct, true word, or we can make it about what God wants to accomplish in steering us, because we all need steered occasionally and guided out of something. All of us get into places where we don't see clearly, where we're blind to something, where we're not, where we're dull to something. And there may be something in our character, something in our actions, something in whatever situation. That we're, and we just, we need someone else to say, hey, have you thought about, could you see this a little bit differently? Have you given this consideration? And if we're wise, we'll listen. God may be speaking. Nabal wasn't listening ever. His reputation was <clears throat> cut it off, not approachable, didn't listen to anybody. And so the question for us and for me, for you, am I a teachable person? Can people approach me or you? Can they reason with you? Can they give you good and wise counsel and you can receive it? It's a really important question. I'm, I'm, all of us need to take some stock of ourselves. How, when people approach us about something important, are we able to tune in? Proverbs chapter 9, I'm going to just read a couple of verses. You know, the Bible, the Proverbs says a lot about fools and wise people. So if you want a refresher on what God says about being wise or what it means to be a fool, I go back to the Proverbs again. Chapter 9, a couple of verses there that remind us of this important truth. Chapter 9, verses 6 through 10, it says, Leave your simple ways and you will live. Walk in the way of understanding. Whoever corrects a mocker 
invites insult. Whoever, whoever rebukes, a, rebukes a wicked man incurs abuse. This is Nabal. He was a mocker and a wicked man, and so insult came back. Abuse came back. Verse 8, do not rebuke a mocker or he will hate you. Rebuke a wise man and he will love you. Instruct a wise man and he will be wiser still. Teach a righteous man and he will add to his learning. He will take it as instruction, correction from the Lord, and he will build on it as he continues in his journey. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. That's just one section out of 31 chapters in Proverbs, but the reality of wise people and foolish people. And in this story, it's so clear. Like It's like, beep, beep, beep. You know, the lights are, the, the siren is going off. We don't have to look very far to understand the foolishness of Nabal. But, and here's where we're headed. The truth is that wisdom wins out. Wisdom wins out. So verse 18, let's keep going. Abigail lost no time. She took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five dressed sheep, five seahs of roasted grain, 100 cakes of raisins, and 200 cakes of pressed figs, and she loaded them on donkeys. We're packing it up. And then she told her servants, go ahead, I'll follow you. But she did not tell her husband, Nabal. And as she came riding her donkey into a, a mountain ravine, there was David and his men descending toward her. And she met them. And David, here it is, verse 2, I just talked about this. David had just said, it has been useless, all my watching over this fellow's property in the desert so that nothing of his was missing. He has paid me back evil for good. He has done me wrong. May God deal with David, be it ever so severely, if by morning I have leave alive one male of all who belong to him. Verse 23, when Abigail saw David, she quickly got off her donkey. She bowed down before David with her face to the ground. She fell at his feet and she said, my Lord, let the blame be on me alone. Please let your servant speak to you. Hear what your servant has to say. May my Lord pay no attention to that wicked man, Nabal. He is just like his name. His name is Fool, and folly goes with him. But as for me, your servant, I did not see the men my master sent. I wasn't there when they made this request. It would have been different if I had been there, but I wasn't. Now, since the Lord has kept you, my master, from bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hands, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, may your enemies and all who intend to harm my master be like Nabal. And let this gift, which your servant has brought to my master, be given to the men who follow you. Please forgive your servant's offense, for the Lord will certainly make a lasting dynasty for my master. She's talking about David because he fights the Lord's battles. Let no wrongdoing be found in you as long as you live. Even though someone is pursuing you to take your life, Saul, the life of my master will be, will be bound securely in the bundle of the living by the Lord your God. But the lives of your enemies he will hurl away as from the pocket of a sling. How did David kill the giant? With a sling shot. She uses the reference to how he took down the giant. Your enemies are going to be like just hurled away like from a slingshot. When the Lord has done for my master every good thing he promised concerning him and has appointed him leader over Israel, my master will not have on his conscience the staggering burden of needless 
bloodshed or of having avenged himself. And when the Lord has brought my master success, remember your servant. Remember me. Mm. Abigail, truth, wisdom wins out. She lost no time. She was discerning. The opposite of her husband. The moment is now. I need to go and find David and appeal to him before he comes to inflict damage on my family. There are some interventions in our lives that require time and space. I get that. Absolutely. Sometimes you have to think it through, pray it through, sort it through, and allow time to pass before that. Inter- but, but there are other times, as the Holy Spirit is making it clear, when the time is now. We got to move now. This thing needs diffused now. And so urgency dictate that it's, it, I got to get this. We got to do this right now. Very good reminder for us. And sometimes we tend, we want to, if it's going to be hard, we, we sometimes put those things off because they are hard, typically, if it's a confrontation that we're not sure we want to have or it's a difficult encounter or a difficult meeting or a difficult relationship, do we really want to go down that road? And so sometimes we'll drag it and drag it and drag it. And sometimes it's like, we got to go now. The Spirit's moving here. So that's a a reminder for me as well as for all of you as you think through those things in your life. Her appeal is so wise. She took the blame, even though it wasn't her fault, she takes responsibility and she senses the need to, interestingly, to cover her husband's sin. Now, we know God, only God can cover our sin. But isn't that interesting how the Bible says love covers a multitude of sins? I don't know how much love she had for her husband, but I guarantee you she loved her children. I guarantee you she wanted to protect her children. And so she says, I'll take the fall. I'll take the blame. And she covers her husband's sin in that way. And then she says, don't pay attention to that fool. He is just like his name. Don't worry about him at all. He's not going to hurt you. And let this gift be a peace offering for you and your men. And so she offers them all the provisions that she has brought. And then she says something really important. The Lord has kept you from bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hands. Allow God to deal with it. That's the biblical truth. Romans chapter 12. Now, I know I asked you to turn to Proverbs, but go to Romans chapter 12 and get back to that that really awesome chapter. If you got your Bible, you can turn there. Verse 17 and following. Great word about God taking care of things. This is for us. This This was for David. This is for us. Verse 17, Paul, by the Holy Spirit, is speaking. By the Holy Spirit, this is God's plan. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Verse 19, do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge I will repay, says the Lord. I'll take care of it. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. 
Verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I will repay, God says, when you are offended, when you are wounded, when you are rejected, when you are wrongly treated, I am keeping track of things in my heavenly scorebook. And I will care for you in the fullness of time according to my wisdom, not yours. God has the ground to bring about true justice. And what happens is we tend to muck it up. And we tend to get in our own flesh. God sees perfectly and he knows what to mete out in terms of punishment and he knows when to mete it out. And so that's a really important truth. Abigail says, David, you know, I'm glad I caught you before it got really bad and before you did something that you would regret and took vengeance into your own hands. That's not God's plan, David. And she's reminding him of that. She's also reminding, acknowledges David's calling from God that you're going to be king someday. You're not king now, but you're going to be king. And when you become king and you sit on the throne, then my master will not have on his conscience the staggering burden of needless bloodshed of having avenged himself. That's God's job. And so what she's saying to him is, live up to your calling, David. You're going to be the next king of Israel. Live up. Don't live down. Don't go in the gutter with that fool. There's already one fool in the story. We don't need another one. And so that's the word she's speaking to David's heart. Abigail's good advice kept David from doing something that he would regret. Proverbs 19.11 says, Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. Proverbs 19.11. And so make choices now that you will not live to regret. When we move according to our feelings and our passions, and we move out hastily, we can often live to regret it. What's the phrase? Rush in like a fool. Rush in like a fool. And so it's, she's bringing this really important word to the king, the future king. And so that's for all of us. When we're in situations that test us, situations where we feel uh, an injustice has occurred, where we've been mistreated, where we've been rejected, uh, and those things hurt. And so, God help me, how do, I, how do I recover from this in a way that still brings you honor and doesn't leave me with a lot of regret? And that requires a lot of prayer and a lot of wisdom. God, show me what that path looks like. Because I don't want to rush in like a fool and make it worse. And then end up having, quote unquote, blood on my hands. That I have done something to hurt someone else. Now let's finish the encounter here as we're coming to the end. 25 and follow, verse 32. David said to Abigail, now she's brought him this word, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you today to meet me. May you be blessed for your good judgment and for keeping me from bloodshed this day and from avenging myself with my own hands. 
Otherwise, as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, who has kept me from harming you, if you had not come quickly to meet me, not one male belonging to Nabal would have been left alive by daybreak. And then David accepted from her hand what she had brought him. And he said, go home in peace. I have heard your words and granted your request. And when Abigail went to Nabal, he was in the house holding a banquet like that of a king. He was in high spirits and very drunk. So she told him nothing until daybreak. And then in the morning when Nabal was sober, his wife told him all these things and his heart failed him and he became like a stone. I don't know if it was a heart attack or a stroke or whatever it was, but the realization of what had happened and what could have happened as, Nabal, as Abigail shares her story got him to the point of his heart just went. About 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Praise be to the Lord who has upheld my cause against Nabal for treating me with contempt. He has kept his servant from doing wrong, and he has brought Nabal's wrongdoing down on his own head. And then David sent word to Abigail, asking her to become his wife. He saw her. She was wise. She was beautiful. She was intelligent. She's going to be my wife. Hmm. His servants went to Carmel and said to Abigail, David has sent us to you to take you to become his wife. And she bowed down with her face to the ground and she said, here is your maidservant ready to serve you and wash the feet of my master's servants. Abigail quickly got on a donkey and attended by her five maids, went with David's messengers and became his wife. Mm. There was no question in David's mind that Abigail had been sent by God and that she was bringing him God's word. That day, that moment, that encounter, it was a divine appointment. He recognizes it because he's not a fool and he listened. He could turn away from his anger because he was willing to listen to the counsel, the wise counsel of someone else. Don't ever overlook the importance of having your heart set in a way that you can hear God speaking and listen to sound advice. Verse 35, Then David accepted from her hand what she had brought him, provisions for he and his men, a peace offering. He sends her home in peace. And in the end, God deals with Nabal. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. He takes care of it. And so the takeaway again, we don't have to become a fool when we are dealing with a fool. And in your life, you will be dealing with people that are hard and difficult and sometimes foolish. And maybe they don't have any regard for God or any understanding of God, don't believe there is a God. And the Bible speaks about that. And so you have the opportunity to not get down in the pit with them, in the mud with them, and exchanged thing for thing for thing for thing. But God, help me to be wise. Help me to be led by your truth. Help me to be led by your honor and your glory so that I can live in a way where I don't regret how I treat people who mistreat me or who, who mishandle my heart. It's a really important truth. Thank you for listening to this latest sermon. For more Prof. Church, check out our YouTube at Prof. Church Lancaster. Follow us on Facebook at Prof. Church Life. 
on Instagram at ProvChurch or visit our website, provchurch.net. Thank you for listening and be sure to make it a great day.